0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achoo, sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this last Sunday in September at Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Today we'll be discussing a very important topic, atrial fibrillation. It is the most common abnormal heart rhythm people can experience, And it puts them at great risk for serious complications. And as any topic we discuss, my hope is that you'll learn to recognize early warning signs and get help as quickly as possible to avoid dangerous outcomes. In this case, stroke, dementia, even premature death. Here with us today is Dr. Hugh Calkins. He's the Catherine Ellen Poindexter Professor of Cardiology and the Director of Electrophysiology Lab and Arrhythmia Service at Johns Hopkins. He's an international expert in atrial fibrillation, ablation, and treatment of abnormal heart rhythms. He's published more than 500 medical articles, multiple book chapters, and is the past president of the Heart Rhythm Society, has held many leadership positions, and received countless awards. Welcome, Hugh, and thank you for joining us today.
2: Uh, Thank you, Mayor, Ann, for the opportunity to be with you.
1: We're really fortunate. Now, I guess it'd be worth reminding our listeners about the four chambers of the heart so they have a visual of what our topic looked like. What would you say in layman's terms? How would you describe atrial fibrillation?
2: Well, the heart is a pump, and the pump is a timer. Now, the heart itself has two upper chambers and two lower chambers, the right atrium, the left atrium, the right ventricle, and the left ventricle. But the pump is controlled by the electrical circuitry of the heart, You know, and I'm an electrophysiologist that focuses on heart rhythm abnormalities. Now, atrial fibrillation, as you mentioned, is an extremely common arrhythmia. When the upper chambers quiver, they they fibrillate. They're going over 500 beats a minute in a totally chaotic heart rhythm, and this causes your lower chamber to beat rapidly, not 600 beats a minute, but maybe 100, 150 beats a minute, and in a chaotic uh, fashion.
1: So I guess if the blood isn't traveling at the speed limit of 55 miles an hour, and it puddles here and there, it can make clots, and once a clot forms and a piece might travel, that's when you get into trouble with stroke risk and that sort of thing. So why is it so important, Hugh?
2: Well, atrial fibrillation is important for many, many, many reasons. But the reason you brought up, bring up, is number one, and that is that it's a very potent risk factor for stroke. If you have atrial fibrillation, your stroke risk goes up fivefold, and most strokes from AFib either ca- cause you to be paralyzed, unable to talk, or kill you. So they're they're usually devastating strokes. So it's extremely important because they're preventable with proper uh, treatment.
1: And from listening to you before. Uh, once people in the population reach age 40 almost one in four will develop afib it's that that common and what's really interesting that i've learned from listening to you is that studies are now linking it to dementia
2: yes i mean in addition to stroke afib has been linked to dementia heart failure a shorter survival and an increased risk of sudden cardiac death as well as a decrease in your quality of life. All components of quality of life are also inhibited, impaired when you have atrial fibrillation. So yes, it's extremely important for you know many, many reasons.
1: Sure. When we were residents, we had a wonderful internist. Thank you, Dr. Jim Morris. And he had this little mnemonic, FATPAV, F-A-T-P-A-V. When somebody comes in an AFib, look for fever, anemia, thyroid disease, pulmonary emboli, atrial enlargement or valvular disease, your list is so much more complete. Tell us about the causes.
2: Well, the most important cause of atrial fibrillation, the most common cause, is age. And as you mentioned, AFib is rare. Generally, the cutoff is 50. It's rare before 50. But once you hit 50, it starts to increase exponentially. And by the time you're 80, 1 in 10, 80-year-olds have atrial fibrillation. Other risk factors for AFib include obesity, hypertension, being tall, being a high-level athlete, having sleep apnea, drinking in an excessive fashion, having high blood pressure, and having other types of heart disease, including uh, ba- uh, including heart failure or prior heart attack. So there are many causes, but the most powerful cause we can't control, and that is getting older.
1: Mm. As uh, Shakespeare would say, age is the unkindest cut of all. (laughs) You know what's interesting that's not on the list is caffeine. I think a lot of people think, and I'm sure, uh, you know, caffeine can cause our heart to go a little more quickly or tachycardia, but that can be friendly, um, increased uh, tempo. Why, I wonder, does excess alcohol, the the holiday heart syndrome, you've often called it, binge drinking, I wonder why that causes AFib.
2: Well, so, so two points. One, as you point out, a common misconception is that, that caffeine causes AFib, and that's not the case, and I'm relieved about that because I mm-hmm. drink loads of coffee. But alcohol Same. can cause AFib, and there's two types of links with alcohol. One is holiday heart, and that is if you get wildly intoxicated, alcohol is a direct toxin to your heart and could trigger atrial fibrillation. So on New Year's Day, when everyone's waking up from their hangover and they, they have their heart going crazy, well, that's, that's binge drinking that can cause AFib. But there's also sure. been a number of studies that show if you drink, you know, two to three drinks a night, your risk of AFib goes up. And, and it's a modifiable risk, meaning if you give up the alcohol or cut it back, your risk of AFib will drop. Wow. And
1: why tall people? I, I am married to a very large oak tree, and he started having little visits with AFib in his 30s.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, it has to do with you know the size of your body, which links to the size of your heart. So, you know, mice never get atrial fibrillation, and whales are in AFib all the time. So, if you take a small person, they're much less likely to get AFib because they have a smaller heart, less real estate for these circles, these circuits to go crazy. And if you're a big person, either tall or just massive, you know, football player kind of person, you know, then you have a bigger heart and you have more opportunity for these circuits to form. Uh, uh, So, yes, there's been many studies that have linked, you know, height and size, body mass, your total body mass to your risk Mm -hmm. of AFib. Sure. And
1: so if your blood pools or it's not keeping a good tempo, you're going to have decreased outflow from your heart to all your vital organs and you're going to feel fatigue maybe pre-syncope or what we call fainting um, shortness of breath but as you mentioned the big worry is will you throw blood clots or emboli to your brain to your arms or legs to your eyes your kidneys all kinds of worry there let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Hugh Calkins thanks Hugh
2: thank you
1: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. Dr. Hugh Hawkins is an international expert on atrial fibrillation, such an important topic. Hugh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that AFib tends to run in families as well.
2: Yes, and there's an inherited component of AFib, particularly when it occurs at a young age before the age of 50. If you have AFib that first shows up when you're 80, that's not a risk factor for you to develop your AFib if your mother or grandmother had AFib when they're 80. But if you have a sibling that developed AFib less than 50 years of age, that's a fairly potent risk factor that you are at increased risk of having AFib. Mm
1: -hmm. So now we've made a diagnosis, and I know you said your patient's, Once you've had an episode of atrial fibrillation, that propensity is there for the life. It it never goes away. And how do you go about treating it?
2: Well, the most important component of treatment is deciding what the stroke risk a given individual has and deciding if they need to be on a blood center. And we use something called the CHADS-VAS score, which basically says, do you have congestive heart failure, hypertension, age over 65, diabetes? Uh, female gender or prior, prior vascular disease or coronary disease. And if you have two of those factors and you're a man or three of those factors and you're a woman, then your stroke risk is elevated and then you need to be on a blood thinner because the benefits of the blood thinner outweigh the risks. Conversely, if you're a you know 50-year-old with no other risk factors, your risk of stroke is so low. At that point in your life, you don't have to be on a blood thinner but but because age is one of the most important risk factors when you get to be 65, probably you'll need to be on a blood thinner and when you're 75, you'll definitely need to be on a blood thinner because at that point, your risk of a stroke is is at least 2% per year. So that's the most important thing. And it's important to remember that when we talk about blood thinners, we don't mean aspirin. Aspirin does nothing to prevent strokes. It actually gives you significant risk of bleeding, bleeding into your brain and other places but it does not decrease the strokes that are caused by a So you need to be on a real blood thinner. We call them NOACs, and there's a number of these new blood thinners uh, that, that you don't have to monitor. They're quite convenient and easy and very effective. Or there's the old-time blood thinner called Coumadin or Warfarin.
1: Mm-hmm. So Coumadin or Warfarin um, is the age-old, and you're not allowed to eat spinach or leafy green vegetables because vitamin K- which is found in those veggies, will um, decrease the effect of the blood thinner. And the newer meds called NOAC are or novel oral anticoagulation drugs. Um, and I'm sure our listeners have heard of some of them, um, Eliquis, Xarelto. And uh, they don't have to be monitored, as you say, which is convenient. I guess the thing that's a little double-edged swordy here is that With age, we're more likely to get AFib and probably more likely to need anticoagulation, but with age, we also are more likely to fall, and that's always a worry that we have to remind our patients to be so careful because, as you say, um, if you hit your head, that's not good, but it's a little less likely to happen with these newer drugs, yes?
2: Yes, I mean, it's important to remember that the risk of bleeding from one of these new NOAC drugs is less than the risk of bleeding on aspirin. And although mm-hmm. everyone says, oh, my goodness, I'm really afraid of falling and bleeding or having a problem, the chance of that happening is extraordinarily uncommon and a much bigger risk is the stroke. So you don't want to sure. you know, not take a blood thinner because you're afraid of bleeding unless you have a history of major bleeding, in which case there's a, another kind of a device called a watchman device. You can a, put a plug in the in the chamber of the heart where blood clots come, and then you don't have to be on a blood thinner. So clearly you yes. need to address your stroke risk issue.
1: So if a person falls and breaks his or her hip, uh, the other, the worry that used to uh, be in existence was that these newer drugs didn't have antidotes and now they do. So that's uh, a great reassurance for people who have to take them. So tell us, I know Johns Hopkins is uh, a huge center for uh, EPS, electrophysiology studies and treatment. Tell us about those approaches when a person can't use a blood thinner.
2: Well, I mean, once you've addressed the issue of blood thinners or not, that's that's sort of the first issue, and either you're on a blood thinner, if you can't take a blood thinner, you get this watchman device put in your, what's called your atrial appendage. But once we've addressed the stroke issue, then we get down to the issue of symptoms. You know, AFib can really impair your quality of life, give you fatigue, palpitations, shortness of breath, passing out, all kinds of symptoms. And and we treat patients with AFib with medicines or with procedures to make their quality of life better. Now, we don't know for sure if these treatments make you live longer, prevent dementia, prevent uh, the development of, uh, of sudden cardiac death, but they do improve your quality of life. And we have a number of medications you can use. And if those don't work, we can do what's called catheter ablation. And that's a procedure that that we and every major medical center performs catheter ablation very commonly because it's it's the most effective treatment for atrial fibrillation.
1: Well, I really think it's helpful for people to learn your philosophy of the four-legged stool. As you say, the first thing you have to address is in every possible way, decrease the likelihood or the risk for stroke, and then you want to control the rate because if somebody's heart is uh, beating more than 100 beats per minute for weeks at a time, they're going to end up with heart failure. And maybe you could tell people what heart failure means.
2: Yes, heart failure is when your heart function, usually your ejection fraction, your heart ejects 60% of your blood with every beat. And AFib, if you have a rapid heart rate, can cause heart failure where your ejection fracture may fall to 30% or 20%. I can remember a patient that went in for a routine checkup with his doctor. He was found to be an AFib. His doctor said, oh, we don't have to worry about it because you, you know, we'll put you on a blood thinner and forget about it. You know, And mm. a year later when I saw him, he was gasping for breath and severe heart failure. And once Aww. we got him back to normal rhythm, we did a catheter blase procedure. His heart function came completely back to normal. So it's a reversible cause of heart failure. But but yes, it's very important to control the heart rate in AFib. And the best way to control the heart rate is get the patient back to normal rhythm.
1: True. I see. So stroke prevention, we have to address rate issues, not too fast, not too slow either. I know there's a tacky Brady, tacky too fast, Brady too slow. You don't want them to be in the Brady bunch either. And that might be a person who would get a pacemaker to keep them from dipping below 60 beats per minute.
2: Yeah, Brady syndrome, if they have AFib and then their heart rate goes super slow, usually there's not a specific heart rate cutoff. Uh, you know, it's really symptoms if their heart rate goes so slow they feel poorly or they feel dizzy or their blood pressure is low. And usually that's a heart rate, you know, in the 30, 40, something like that, much lower than 60 beats a minute, which, which healthy people can commonly have.
1: Mm-hmm. And so when somebody uh, fails medication as the way to, Uh, bring them back to a sinus rhythm. Tell us about ablation.
2: So, a catheter ablation has been around for about 20 years for atrial fibrillation, and we know that AFib is triggered from the pulmonary veins, the structures that bring blood from your lungs back to your heart. There's veins, and in those veins are muscle fibers, and those muscle fibers, for unclear reasons, can go crazy and start stimulating lots of extra rapid beats, and that can trigger atrial fibrillation. So we've learned that the way to to get rid of AFib is to go in either with a freezing balloon system or a point-by-point heat ablation system and electrically isolate those veins to put a roadblock around the veins so the blood can go through, but the rogue electrical impulses that are going crazy can't get through into the atrium to cause AFib. And that procedure has been around for 20 years. It's shown to be remarkably effective, and and the safety is getting better and better every year. Right now, in a good candidate, we'd say it works in about 70 to 80% of patients, and it has about a 1% complication rate.
1: It's really incredible how much we learn. And, And I guess there are national and international registries where cardiologists and EPS specialists share data.
2: Yes, there's been lots of multicenter trials or big clinical trials. You know, many of the, I mean, all of the tools we use for to treat AFib have been approved by the FDA, so they've gone through a rigorous safety and efficacy testing. And we're really very confident in the value of AFib ablation. And this is a procedure done all over the world, whether you're in China or India or the United States or Europe. You know, you know patients who get AFib, many of them end up getting a catheter ablation procedure to treat it.
1: Mm-hmm. And going back to your um, mantra of the four-legged stool. So we talk about uh, anticoagulation to decrease stroke risk. Uh, we want to control the rate, not too fast, not too slow. We want to control the rhythm so that it's sinus or normal-paced, lub dub, lub dub, not a quivering kind of uh, irregularly irregular rhythm. And then because the traffic doesn't flow properly. And then we'll spend time a little bit later on other risk factors that we can modify. But um, of the patients who should be on anticoagulation, I've heard you say only half the people who really should be anticoagulated or on blood thinners are not.
2: Yes, you're right. It's sort of shocking that many people have AFib, and either they or their doctors they haven't talked to their doctors about it, and they're they're basically they're in AFib. Their stroke risk is elevated. And they first dis, you know, discover they have AFib or sort of the wake-up wake calls when they have a stroke. But oftentimes that's too late because they can't talk anymore. They can't walk anymore. They're in a nursing oh. home. So, so it's very important. Oh. To, if you have AFib, what's your stroke risk? Meet with your doctor. And if you need to be on a blood thinner, get on that blood thinner. Even if you don't mm-hmm. like the idea of it, it really can save your life.
1: Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. We're talking to Dr. Hugh Hawkins from Johns Hopkins. Thanks, Hugh.
0: Thank you. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
1: Atrial fibrillation, the most common abnormal heart rhythm. So, we're talking with Dr. Calkins from Johns Hopkins. Hugh, if, the, if, medic- if medications don't work, we reach for catheter ablation. You've had 30 years of experience. If a person has uh, catheter ablation and it cures their AFib, does it keep them safe forever?
2: Uh, that's a very good question, Marianne, and the answer is no that we never use the term cure when it comes to atrial fibrillation. It's just too complex of an arrhythmia. We use the term controlled. It's like cancer in remission. You have AFib, you get an ablation, your AFib's in remission, but it can always show up again. And the data says that about five years after you have an ablation procedure, one in four patients, the AFib has come back. And if it comes back, then you can go try medications again or do another catheter ablation procedure. Some people over the course of a lifetime will get three, even four Catheter ablation procedure. So, no, it doesn't cure the AFib, it controls the AFib. And the whole idea is improving your quality of life so that you can live life fully without feeling terrible because of the atrial fibrillation.
1: Right. You're not fatigued and short of breath and that sort of thing. If the uh, ablation works, can the patient be taken off blood thinner? That's the other big question.
2: Well, yes, that's another very good question. And, and the logical thing is you say, well, if the AFib is gone because I've had the ablation, well, of course, you can stop the, the blood thinners. But that's not the case. That if your stroke risk profile is elevated, if you have, you know, you're over 65 and you have hypertension and diabetes and so forth, even if the AFib's gone, you're still at increased risk of stroke. The question is, is AFib a risk factor for stroke or a risk marker for stroke? And the real experts in stroke and blood thinners and so forth feel that AFib is a risk marker for stroke. So the mere fact that you're an AFib patient means your stroke risk is elevated. And depending on those factors we talked about, we can put a number on how much it's elevated. And if it's elevated above a certain level, usually about 2% per year risk of stroke, then you need to be on that blood thinner, even if your AFib seems to be gone because you've had a procedure.
1: At bay, sure. And for our listeners, that's the CHADS VASC score, so C H A D S V A S C, if you want to read about it. Um, And you know, I think too, um, you said the catheter ablation, in some ways, you say it's four times more effective than medical therapy. But in each patient, the results vary, I'm sure, depending on other circumstances.
2: Yes, there's good candidates for catheter ablation and bad candidates for catheter ablation. Good candidates, the best candidates, have the intermittent forms of AFib where you go in and out on your own. So if you have intermittent AFib and you're less than 70 and you're otherwise a generally healthy person, then you're considered an ideal candidate. If, on the Mm -hmm. other hand, you've been in AFib for two years or longer continuously, then you're a worse candidate, particularly if you're obese, if you're over 70 or 80, you have hypertension, prior stroke, you know, then you have more comorbidities, but then the success rate of the procedure goes down and the risk goes up so you always have to weigh the risks and benefits and and when you meet with your doctor they'll they'll go over all that and give you a specific number for you this is what i think the single procedure success rate is this is what i think the risks are and then each person has to make you know a decision about whether they want to go forward or not right
1: And, and what's so beautiful about a center like yours is you have a team approach and you individualize the plan for each person so um You would say that almost no one is not a candidate, but you have to weigh those risks like obesity, which brings us to the fourth leg of the stool and those risk factors that we can control. Tell us about the uh, studies and what they show.
2: Well, one of the biggest changes in the last five years in atrial fibrillation management is that we now realize that obesity is a very powerful risk factor for AFib and and if you don't treat the obesity, the chance of controlling the AFib with medicines or with procedures is much lower. You know, most of these studies started by a group actually in Australia and they did some early work in sheep and showed that if you sent the sheep to the smorgasbord, they'd get fat and they'd get AFib. And then if they lost if if they if they lost the weight, the AFib would disappear. Well, then they went and did the same study in, in people. Well, they didn't Tell people to fatten up, but they took people that were obese that had AFib, had them lose weight, and they showed that the AFib would become much less if they got the weight off. And then they did studies to look at catheter ablation. If you're obese and you have catheter ablation and you lose the weight, you have a 30% better chance of doing well than if you don't lose the weight. So it's critically important to get the weight off, you know, the American guidelines, the European guidelines, everyone realized that that's critically important. So we always assess, you know, how much do you weigh? You want your body mass index, ideally, to be less than 27, or if it's way above that, start by losing 10% of your weight and then work your way down to 27, and you'll have a far higher chance of living life in sinus rhythm than an AFib.
1: And, you know, each week, Hugh, I, I ask my listeners... If they take one fact away with them from whatever topic we discuss for our listeners, if that doesn't motivate you to prevent stroke, that weight loss should be part of the treatment strategy, really, especially since you tell me or not tell me, but I've heard you say that weight loss alone can sometimes control the AFib even without the ablation.
2: Exactly. You know, it's it's in someone having lots of AFib, it's unlikely they're going to get rid of every bit of it. Right. But it's going to yeah. make it a lot less, but it's going to make it much mm-hmm. more responsive to other treatments. So, yes, mm-hmm. the, weight, the weight piece is is critically important. I mean, I meet a patient, take a look at him. You know, you look how much they weigh, you look how thick their neck is, do they have sleep apnea, which is another risk that we mm-hmm. always think about now, mm-hmm. and you sort of can get a sense whether this is going to be a good candidate for treatment, or this is someone that's going to be a tougher tougher road.
1: I am a big proponent proponent of sleep studies. I'll sedate patients to do procedures, and I can see them. I can see people who have sleep apnea when they wake up. That's another discussion. Say, please... Um, uh, reflux, most of the time it's not life-threatening, but if people reflux enough fluid, they can aspirate, you know? And so, um, both in your corner of cardiology and abnormal rhythms and in aspiration, uh, sleep apnea, sleep studies are so easy and they can help so much, uh, to decrease risk of stroke and aspiration pneumonia. So, um, I wanted to go back a little bit to, the types of uh, the ablation catheters you can use RF or the cryo balloon or laser. Can you highlight
2: those briefly? Yes, the first one developed with the, was RF ablation, which is point by point ablation. You go and burn little little marbles, you know, size lesions around the vein, and you have a special navigation system so you can put in a perfect circle, for a perfect roadblock around the vein. So that was the first ablation tool that was developed. And then the next on the block was the freezing balloon, where you take a balloon, shove it into the vein, and anything the balloon touches freezes. And when the when 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 the tissue warms up, the the cell crystal you know sort of explodes, if you will, and that kills the cell and it accomplishes the same thing. And then there's laser balloons, which is another balloon system which uses heat, a laser derived heat, to create a you know full roadblock. And, you know, in terms of which of these tools is better, it really depends on your physician. Some physicians are most comfortable with the cryoblone. Some people are most comfortable with the... RF system and others prefer the laser system, so you know, to, you know your doctor will tell you what they feel the best initial tool is if the full first tool doesn 't work, usually for second procedures we'll use RF ablation because they're more flexible in terms of the lesions that we can deliver, and we can tailor what we 're doing more precisely to a given patient uh, so yes there's there's a number of different tools and 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 I think most big centers have at least two of the three tools available to treat sure. their patients.
1: And I know from training with laser myself, gosh, uh, years ago at Sloan Kettering, we used laser to open up really um, narrowed esophageal cancers and zip, 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 zip a little bit at a time. And it's not an exact science. Picture putting a cigarette, for our listeners, a cigarette onto a piece of paper. You can't tell where the ripple, you know, when you put a stone in a, in a lake, it makes a nice, even Um, burn or I should say ripple, but when we do a burn, but I know that it's become such a much more exact science with laser and the treatments that you use. And it's just incredible to see how far it has come and how much safer it is than it was even 30 years ago. Um, So the other point is to not yo-yo diet. I mean, it's it's easier to do that and then say, hey, I've lost some weight, now I can afford to eat a little bit more because that's not going to help your risk for AFib either, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's been studies done looking at sort of weight fluctuations and obviously the folks that do the best are the ones that if they're heavy, they just have a slow gradual you know, decrease in their weight over time and get to that BMI of 27 or less is where we like to see people.
1: Right. So I guess what's interesting is, control our weight the best we can. Sleep apnea, wear the little uh, CPAP. Um, And the thing is, now there's a a procedure called Inspire. I'm sure you've heard of that. And it's a little device that stimulates your uvula and the soft tissues to stay open so that if people can't manage with the mask or the little gear, there are ways to fight the uh, effects of sleep apnea. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back to close with Dr. Hugh Calkins. Thanks, Hugh. Thank you. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. We have learned so much about atrial fibrillation, uh, those things we can't control, but those things we can control, what would your parting message be, Dr. Corkins, today?
2: I think my parting message is is everyone should be aware of their heart rhythm. You know, you have a heart that's a pump, it's controlled by the electrical system, and normally we should have a smooth heart rhythm with a heart rate around sixty or seventy at rest and when we're exercising hundred and twenty or hundred and thirty. But if your pulse is irregular, you know, then you might have atrial fibrillation and there's lots of tools we now have to assess your pulse. You may notice that when you're exercising, you can check your pulse with your finger just behind your thumb, where there's all kinds of technology, Apple Watches, the Alive Core system, where, where more and more of my patients are diagnosing AFib and coming to me saying, hey, I have AFib, how do we treat it?
1: That's so great. So Apple Watches and all kinds of gadgets that you see t- on TV where people rest their index finger and their middle finger, and it picks up their EKJ, it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, it's a whole new. yeah we 're yes, in a sorry. whole new world where where now you' know, power to the people and if if you know, people are mm-hmm. picking up afib you 're themselves and and hopefully that's preventing stroke and and making a big difference in their life
1: yes, I know um it's in my family. I have a sister who was just diagnosed God bless her she 's okay, and uh she 's learned that even if she 's on the phone or she 's sitting having dinner, and nobody has to see her put her fingers on her pulse she 's learned how to. Realize when she's in regular rhythm or not, so that's a good thing. Um, how about any websites you'd invite patients to visit or listeners to visit?
2: Yeah, I'd like to call attention to two patient directed uh, groups. One is stopafib.org, which is a patient support group for AFib. Another is the Arrhythmia Alliance, which is actually putting on a free conference on September 27th. Anyone can go to the Arrhythmia Alliance, just Google it. You can find the website, and you can log in sign up for this conference. I was one of the speakers, but it's all free, and I think people would find that interesting. And then the Heart Rhythm Society has a website for patients, upbeat.org. So that's another great resource to learn more information about atrial fibrillation and other heart rhythm abnormalities.
1: Oh, these are great. So stopafib.org, upbeat.org. We can remember that. We all want to be happy. And the Arrhythmia Alliance. So that's A-R-R-H-Y-T-H-M-I-A, Arrhythmia Alliance. I'm sure if you put it in, it will auto-populate. Upbeat.org, stopafib.org. That's awesome. Because I, I do think people are more aware. And once people see a visual and they see the irregular graph of their EKJ, they'll know. It'll all make sense to them and, it, and it'll be easier to follow and uh, get the right help that they need. Thank you so much, Dr. Hugh Calkins. Your explanations were beautiful. I think we covered every um, little piece of information we could think of in our short time together, but I'd love to have you back sometime and and hear about your continued work because you are saving hundreds of thousands of people with your research and uh, your information. So thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it very much.
2: Thank you, Marianne. It's been fun. Take care now. Bye.
1: And now it's time for your real champion, Karen Coyle. I call this Signed, Sealed, Delivered. The pandemic. We hear of the courageous healthcare workers exposed to COVID, but today I'd like to highlight the men and women of the U.S. Postal Service. For months, people were afraid to even touch their mail in case it carried COVID. But your mail carrier still delivered to your mailbox every day, right on schedule. And in the large distribution centers, many continued to sort millions of cards letters, magazines, packages from around the world because they take the pledge. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Meet Karen Coyle, a 28-year veteran of the U.S. Postal Service. She's worked in every size postal office, including the large airmail center, even taking packages from the bellies of planes, and has lots of stories to share like the delicate shipment of roosters and baby chicks that had to reach their final destination in twenty-four hours she was serenaded by their cock-a-doodle-doos for an entire eight-hour shift and proudly reports they never lost one bird and who could forget the box of one thousand crickets that chirped all night the large office in philadelphia formerly thirtieth street receives over a million pieces of mail a day sorted through the night and ready for delivery the next day karen says this is a very physical job Mail is placed in trays, passed through several machines, sorted by state, and gradually down to the exact neighborhood. In mail distribution, you work through the weekend and have two days off during the week. It's a tough life. And when the UPS goes on strike, you work a lot of overtime. Right now with COVID, many are working overtime because co-workers are home with children whose schools are closed or if their office has cases of COVID. Karen's husband is a retired mail carrier. He dealt with hot summers, cold winters, bathroom challenges, a knee replacement, and yes, more than one dog bite, but he loved his job. Karen now works in a neighborhood office and says, you don't realize how much you touch others when you're kind. People remember the times I found that gift package of brownies from grandma, or I left the counter to help with her post office box, or sent a package for a better price. I reminded Karen how grateful I was when on two separate occasions, I left a package of stamps or mail on the counter. Each time, she sent them with the postman to our house the next day with a little note. Karen says, customers appreciate me because I listen. Maybe they need to talk about their sick child or let me know their spouse died. Then I walk around and give them a hug. She even brought soup and dinners to a lonely elderly lady. Well, two years ago, Karen learned how much she is appreciated. And when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she missed only a few days through her chemo. And when she lost her hair, she embraced her baldness. She never felt sorry for herself, never blamed anyone. She said, what the heck, it's just a hurdle. Then one day, she didn't feel well. Two of her regular customers came around the counter, brought her water, and sat there till her boss came. So many customers made her feel loved. Cards, flowers, gifts. She was overwhelmed by the reactions. One person had just given her a first edition stamp because Karen's daughter had just joined the Navy. Another gave her an angel to keep at her desk. When COVID came, she realized her increased risk, but she still came to work, even on super busy days near Easter and Mother's Day. She's especially grateful to the U.S. Post Office for taking such good care of postal workers. The Postal Service learned from anthrax scare and works to protect all of us with tracking measures to check for hazardous materials. That's why Karen asks, does your package have any liquids, perishables, perfume, lithium, potential hazmats, etc.?" And with COVID, We had immediate protection with masks, gloves, and the plexiglass screens. Soon, Karen will enjoy a well-deserved retirement. She and her husband will move to Florida to a community with retired postal workers and continue to share in the camaraderie they've come to cherish. We salute Karen Coyle, your real champion. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week to hear about innovative medicine from Dr. Mark Tikachinsky, Dean of the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University and virologist, Dr. Matthias Schnell, who's working on a very effective and very safe vaccine for COVID. Listen to all of our shows on yourradiodoctor.com. Send us stories of a champion in your family, your office or community to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Send us your champion story to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Today we talked about heart rhythms, which reminds me, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. The way to a woman's heart is to play the sounds of Sinatra, up next with Sid Mark. And always remember, your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been...